The meeting will come to order. Welcome to the January 17th meeting of the Budget and Finance Committee. I'm Supervisor Connie Chan, Chair of the Committee. I am joined by Vice Chair Raphael Mendelman uh, and shortly by Supervisor Mirna Malgar. Our clerk is Brent Halipa. I would like to thank um, Matthew Enall uh, from TV for broadcasting the meeting. Mr. Clerk, do you have any announcements? Thank you, Madam Chair. Just a friendly reminder. Uh, to those in attendance, to please make sure to silence all cell phones and electronic devices, assess to not to interrupt our proceedings. Uh, should you have any documents to be included as part of the file, uh, they should be submitted to myself, the clerk. Public comment will be taken on each item on this agenda, and when your item of interest comes up and public comment is called, uh, please line up to speak on the west side of the chamber to your right, my left, right along those curtains. Uh, alternatively, you may submit public comment in writing in either of the following ways. Email them to myself, the Budget and Finance Committee Clerk, at brent.jalipa at sfgov.org. If you submit public comment via email, it will be forwarded to the supervisors and also included as part of the official file. You may also send your written comments via U.S. Postal Service to our office at City Hall. That's one. Dr. Carlton B. Goodlett Place, room 244, San Francisco, California, 94102. And finally, Madam Chair, items act acted upon today are expected to appear on the Board of Supervisors agenda of January 23rd, unless otherwise stated. Madam Chair. Thank you, Mr. Clerk. And before we call all the items, uh, for, uh, before we proceed with today's meeting, I'd like to just uh, alert everyone that uh, none of the items today have a budget and legislative uh, analyst report. Uh, therefore, we will have presentation from City Department uh, and committee. Please feel free to ask any questions and we'll proceed to public comments. With that, Mr. Clerk, please call item number one. Yes, item number one is a resolution retroactively authorizing the Department of Juvenile Probation to accept an expended grant allocation from the California Department of Social Services in the amount of approximately 360000 for the period of October 1st, 2021 through September 30th, 2026 for intensive foster care and family preservation services. Madam Chair. Thank you. Today we have uh, Seth uh, Coborn, Principal Grants uh, and Policy Analyst from our juvenile probation department. Uh, <clears throat> good morning. Um, the department um, is seeking uh, authorization, uh, retroactive, um, uh, to fund um, intensive foster care services um, for youth with um, special needs and more complex needs um, with, through a partnership with Alternative Family Services and the uh, Department of Children, Youth, and Families. Um, the resolution is retroactive because it reflects the grant terms from the California Department of Social Services. Although we don't expect to, we, we will be billing for um, costs for this fiscal year moving forward. Um, and we fully intend to use the, 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 all the funds in this fiscal year and the next. And I'd be happy to answer any questions you might have. Thank you. I don't see any question uh, for now. And uh, just a quick question and help me understand. Um, will this services be provided on site at the hall or how, how does this actually work? No, no, these will be um, provided through our partnership um, with Alternative Family Services. So it will no, not, not on site, no. Understood. You, yep. oh, sorry, go ahead. That was it. <laughs> okay, thank you. With that, um, let's go to public comment on this item. Yes, we now invite members of the public who have joined us today who wish to speak on this item uh, to go ahead and line up and um, approach the lectern. Madam Chair, we have no speakers. 
Thank you. Seeing no public comments, public comment is now closed. Uh, colleagues, I would like to uh, make the motion to move this uh, to full board with a recommendation. And with that, a roll call, please. And on that motion to forward to the full board with a positive recommendation, Vice Chair Mandelman. Aye. Mandelman, aye. Member Melgar. Melgar, aye. Chair Chan. Aye. Chan, aye. We have three ayes. Thank you, and the motion passes. And please, uh, Mr. Clerk, call item number two. Yes, item number two is an ordinance retroactively authorizing the Office of the Chief Medical Examiner to accept and expend a grant in the amount of approximately one million from the California Department of Public Health, Substance and Addiction Prevention Branch and authorizing the addition of grant-funded temporary class uh, 2403 forensic laboratory analyst, class 2456 forensic toxicologist, and class 2457 forensic toxicologist supervisor positions has acquired for the period beginning December 1st, 2023 through June 30th, 2028. Madam Chair. Thank you. Today we have Dr. Luke uh, Roda, Chief Forensic Toxicologist, Office of the Chief Medical Examiner. Good morning. Thank you, Madam Chair and honorable members. Thank you for hearing this matter today. I'm joined with my uh, colleague, uh, Executive Director of the Department, David Serrano-Sul. And again, thank you for hearing this matter today. <clears throat> uh, so um, as this, this board well knows, we're undergoing a, a significant increase in accidental overdoses in recent years, uh, some 400% increase from the last decade to the start of this decade. Um, and so with that um, has bring uh, some increase in caseload to support this effort. California DPH has reached out to us a couple of years ago um, with a grant to help supply us with staffing for the reanalysis of 2022 accidental overdoses for novel, novel synthetic opioids. Uh, with this project, we developed um, really uh, leading methodologies um, to detect over 250 of these novel opioids, and we retrospectively uh, went back and reanalyzed decedent's blood uh, and urine for this type of um, compounds. We found that uh, over 50 um, substances of novel synthetic opioids and or xylazine was detected um, in these decedents. Um, specifically, and I've mentioned fluorofentanyl was an increase of 45 um, cases were detected. Um, we issued a 27-page report, and this was released on our website, um, providing the in individual data um, of the decedents, but also um, categorised these, these drugs into classes to better um, provide information for the policymakers in the health, health department. Uh, with that, the California DPH um, reached out to us again uh, to ask if we would be interested in doing a five-year term grant uh, at this time looking not just at novel synthetic opioids but novel drugs in general, so larger scope of drugs. Um, and to do this, there's, there's obviously some challenges that we're facing, um, and that's due to the, the increase in caseload, as I mentioned before, um, but also the, in, the increase in novel drug availability in the community, and so there's more drugs to test. And additionally, uh, there's polysubstance and multiple drug use by individuals, and so the, the, the cases that we receive are, are getting more and more complex. And so with those challenges in mind, some of the aims that we have is to create and validate a, a, a novel um, drug testing um, scheme uh, that needs to be um, automated and efficient to keep up with these caseloads and demands over the next several years and provide these uh, accurate now cause and manner de de determinations to families and also to um, public health policy makers. But we also want to make sure that we maintain turnaround times um, to do so. And so with that, uh, the ask in this grant is to supply staffing 
um, in terms of forensic toxicologists and technical staff, um, namely forensic toxicologists, but with the ability to also um, hire other um, st related staff as needed over the, the five-year term. And so that's the, um, the grant and the ask of, of this committee. Thank you. Thank you. Um, because I am just a layperson and just out of curiosity and trying to um, have a better understanding of what we're tackling with and when it comes to overdosing in the city and, and in terms of deaths, could you elaborate a little bit more about just a range of, because you mentioned also in this letter uh, of about the grant, it's to um, talk about, with the increase of caseload, it's because also a wide range of novel psych psychotic active substances. Could you just help us understand, better understand like kind of what they are and how would generally individuals have access to these? Certainly, yes. Yeah. So um, over the last decade, uh, the, the recreational illicit drug market has become a lot more complex. Um, every year there is anywhere up from dozens to up to 100 novel new drugs being developed somewhere across the world that can be synthesised and then uh, released into the community. Uh, now, these aren't certainly the main culprits uh, that have been used to, to, to precipitate the, the accidental overdose crisis that we have, but it's certainly, as we've seen with that retrospective test uh, in 2022, was a, a significant number of cases. Um, so the novel synthetic opioids was what we analysed um, in 2022, that's a subclass of novel psychoactive substances as a whole. Of these novel psychoactive substances, there's some 1,000 of those um, now been discovered, if you will, over the last 10 years. And so we're playing a catch-up game, essentially, to try to develop methods to effectively screen these substances on a routine basis. And that's what we're trying to do with this grant moving forward, is to develop a, a, a very automated and efficient system to be able to analyse a thousand substances on a routine daily basis for all cases coming in. Uh, it's, a, it's a complex challenge that all forensic laboratories across the country are facing um, and so we're trying to get ahead of that. And once we have the results, uh, what do we do with them? Yeah, so firstly, importantly, um, it would be uh, considered as part of if relevant in the case, as the cause and manner of that death. So the, the first immediate um, result would be an accurate cause and manner of death uh, for both the, the family and the next of kin, um, but also for then the wider public health and policy makers throughout the, the San Francisco and also the state. So understanding the complexity of the problem, um, we plan to issue ag aggregated data on a, on a very timely basis, as we do for the monthly overdose report. The goal of this grant is to also provide this data on a, on a not just an annual report but on a more timely report so um, something can be done uh, sooner rather than later. I do look forward to seeing that. I look forward to seeing uh, what you find, uh, what your team, you and your team uh, will be finding and then uh, how does that actually sync up with some of the work that you know, uh, Dr. Hilary Kunis is doing with Department of Public Health and just really having the, the matchup to see what is a comprehensive approach for the city, um, both hopefully in population, uh, understanding and discovery of the deaths and the cause of death more accurately and the substance that actually impacted those deaths uh, or caused those deaths. Um, thank you so much for all your work. Vice Chair Mandelman. 
Thank you, uh, Madam Chair, and uh, thanks to the office. I would just like to be added as a co-sponsor. Uh, with that, um, let's go to public comment. Yes, members of the public who have joined us today who wish to speak on this item. Uh, now is your opportunity to approach the lectern to provide your public comment. Madam Chair, we have no speakers. Seeing no public comments, public comment is now closed. I do understand, though, there is a proposed amendment. We should have discussed it before I went to public comments, but... Um, Thank you. Good morning, Chair Chan. Good morning, members of the committee. Sophie Hayward from the Office of City Administrator Carmen Chu. And we have before you some technical amendments uh, that are required in order to correctly categorize these very important grant-funded positions by amending the annual salary ordinance. So I've provided those amendments to the clerk, and I circulated hard copies to the committee. But for the benefit of the public, if it's okay with you, I'll just walk uh, through the specific amendments. Please. On page one, line six and seven, we added a note that the grant-funded positions require amending the annual salary ordinance. On page two, line nine, we added the word retroactively to align with the grant period and to match the title and description. This is my favorite one. On page two, line 12, we simply deleted novel psychoactive substances because we already defined NPS in the title section or in the section above. Uh, and then finally, in section three, page three, Lines 2 and 3 and 24 and 25, we added the note to clarify the grant-funded positions require an amendment to the annual salary ordinance for fiscal years 2023-24 and 24-25. And on page line 3, lines 5 and 6, in order to correctly categorize the positions, we struck the word temporary and replaced it with grant-funded. And then on lines 18, 20, and 22, we deleted the word TEX, again, in order to correctly characterize the positions as grant-funded rather than temporary. Thank you. I, I think the quick question that I have is the fact that um, while they, these are grant-funded positions, um, important positions, uh, but knowing both, and because they're provided by the state and seeing the deficit that we have, um, how do we see to function and with these positions beyond 2025? So beyond the five-year grant terms, um, the, 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 there is no expectations to necessarily maintain that staffing. The objective is to uh, efficiently develop a process internally in the, in the laboratory which is able to keep up with that caseload. Um, and that's the goal of this grant, is to, is to make that system as effective as possible. Um, thank you. I appreciate this information. And uh, with that, um, I would like to make the motion to amend the legislation as read out loud by um, Ms. Sophie Hayward from the City Administrator's Office. And with that, a roll call, please. And on the motion to amend uh, this ordinance as offered by the City Administrator's Office, Vice Chair Mandelman. Mandelman, aye. Member Melgar. Melgar, aye. Chair Chan. Aye. Chan, I. We have three eyes. Thank you, and that motion passes. But if I understand correctly, um, it's substantive, and uh, it's the reason why we have to continue for one week. And so we'd like to continue this item for one week uh, to the next week's budget committee. And with that, a motion, please. A uh, roll call, please. And on the motion uh, to continue uh, this ordinance as amended to the January 24th meeting of this committee, Vice Chair Mandelman. Mandelman, aye. Member Melgar. 
Melgar, aye. Chair Chan. Aye. Chan, aye. We have three ayes. Thank you, and the motion passes. Um, and Mr. Cook, please call item number three. Yes, item number three is an ordinance approving contracts between the city and the American Registry for Internet uh, Numbers Limited, or ARIN, for the registration of the city's internal network and public-facing network internet protocol addresses and granting waivers of specified contract-related requirements in the administrative code for this transaction. Madam Chair. Thank you. And we have Brian Roberts, uh, policy analyst from the Department of Technology here. Thank you. Good morning, Chair Chan and Supervisors Mandelman and Melgar. My name's Brian Roberts. I'm a policy analyst with the Department of Technology. And today the board is the department is seeking board of supervisors approval for agreements between the city and the American Registry for Internet Numbers or Aaron. Um, the department intends to enter into a new agreement with Aaron for the public facing networks such as fiber to housing and public Wi-Fi that we have on our market street in the parks. Um, and as well as consolidate existing use for internal networks. Um, the purpose of the new agreement is to ensure that we have separate internal and public-facing networks and also to consolidate the city's use of internet addresses. Um, so it's a relatively small value contract. It's uh, $10,500 per year. Um, and I can explain a little bit why we're, why we're here for, for this. Aaron is a nonprofit organization whose sole purpose is to administer internet um, and assign and manage uh, addresses in North America. Aaron is the sole provider of internet addresses in, in North America. So the Aaron agreement is a standard form used by Aaron um, and is required for contracting its services. The agreement includes certain terms that deviate from the city's standard contract terms. Um, most of the, these conflicts were resolved through the Office of Con administration, but there are a couple that we needed board approval for. One is this uh, is considered a perpetual contract and it will automatically renew. And the other is that Aaron wasn't willing to uh, include the McBride principles. Um, so that's why we're seeking this approval today. Uh, in 2006, the Board of Supervisors authorized DT to enter into an agreement with Aaron for the internal network. So this would set up a parallel agreement for the uh, external facing networks. Um, so that's, and that's why we're here and the um, authority we're seeking today. And I'd be happy to entertain any questions. Thanks. Thank you, yes, this contract term exceeds 10 years, uh, yes. but not, not exceeding 20 years. Um, it's the reason why uh, it's triggered the Charter, charter 9.118, so that it has to come before board for this agreement. And with that, I don't see any questions on the roster, uh, on, on any names on the roster. Oh, no, Supervisor Malkar? Yeah, I just had one question because it's been widely reported in the press that our jail population has increased. So are you, are we, uh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, this is the wrong question, sorry. Yep, we're almost there. Uh, no, it's okay. Vice Chair Mendelman. Well, I hesitate to head down this rabbit hole, but I am kind of curious. So, um, so, so did, why don't they want to, <laughs> why don't they want to sign on for the McBride principles? Um, 
I'm not sure. I think because it's a relatively low value contract with them. And if you think about the number of entities that they deal with, um, this is speculation. They don't want to do a bespoke contract with exactly. us. Exactly. So it's not something specific about the McBride principles, but rather the exactly. fact that we hand them a, an, a bunch of exhibits to sign that they don't have to sign for any other city that they do business with. Or ISP or, uh -huh. there's, or other enterprise and throughout North America. So the Caribbean, Canada, Thank you. the US. Thank you. Thank you, and with that, um, let's go to public comment on this item. Yes, Madam Chair, we invite members of the public who wish to speak on this item to approach the lectern and provide us your public comment. Madam Chair, we have no speakers. Thank you, and seeing no public comments, public comment is now closed. Colleagues, I would like to move this item to full board with recommendation, and with that, a roll call, please. And on that motion to forward this ordinance to the full board uh, with a positive recommendation. Vice Chair Mandelman. Mandelman, aye. Member Melgar. Melgar, aye. Chair Chan. Aye. Chan, aye. We have three ayes. Thank you. The motion passes. And with that, please, Mr. Clerk, uh, call item, uh, items four and five together. Yes, items four and five retroactively authorizes the office of the district attorney to accept and expand the following grants. Item four is a grant resolution in the amount of 1.2 million from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation for the grant period of January 1st, 2023 through December 31st, 2025 to support and sustain the city and county's comprehensive efforts to reduce jail incarceration and racial and ethnic disparities in jail usage as a site uh, in the safety and justice challenge. And item number five is a grant ordinance in the amount of approximately two million from the State of California Board of State and Community Corrections to fund the organized retail theft vertical prosecution grant program and amending the annual salary ordinance for fiscal years 2023 to 2024 and 2024 to 2025 to provide for the addition of one grant funded position in class 8177 attorney civil uh, criminal and one grant funded position in class uh, 8550 district attorney's uh, investigator SFers uh, at the office of the district attorney for the grant agreement period of October 1st, 2023 through June 1st, 2027. Madam Chair. Thank you. And uh, this is uh, both items uh, are related to the operation in our district attorney's office. So we have district attorney's office uh, representative here. Um, just want to clarify that uh, item four is specifically about um, jail incarceration um, related issues. And then item five is the retail theft uh, uh, organized uh, crime um, issue. Thank you. Good morning. Thank you, supervisors. My name is Tara Agnesi. I'm the director of policy for the San Francisco District Attorney's Office. Thank you, Chair Tam, for scheduling this item, and thank you, supervisors, for allowing me to present this morning. The item before you today is a resolution to accept and expend a $1.2 million grant from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation for the Safety and Justice Challenge Initiative. So this morning, I'm going to share a little bit about that Safety and Justice Challenge Initiative, talk about the sustainability grant itself, and talk about um, our commitment to the initiative and our ongoing partnership with the MacArthur Foundation. The goals of the Safety and Justice Challenge Initiative are threefold, to reduce racial and ethnic disparities in the jail, to maintain overall jail population reductions, and to develop mechanisms to sustain efforts and changes. 
The SJC initiative is a multi-agency cross-justice system partnership across multiple, with multiple partners um, at the table. That includes the Adult Probation Department, the Department of Public Health, the District Attorney's Office, the Public Defender's Office, the Sheriff's Office, and the Superior Court. This is the third SJC Safety and Justice Challenge grant that the city has received. From the first grant onward, SJC partners have collaborated across five different strategy areas, which are all designed to reduce racial and ethnic disparities in the jail and to address the jail population. Those five strategies are to lead with race, to sustain a shared focus on the in-custody population, to improve case processing, increase healthy connections, and to drive with data. With each of these strategy areas, SJC partner agencies come together to present and consider potential solutions that can identify and target those disparities and that can ensure that we're bringing community partners, including those with lived experience, to the conversation. Um, part of the, it's part of an ongoing effort to create and strengthen partnerships between system leaders and those with justice system involvement. So a little bit about the sustainability grant. Um, this Safety and Justice Challenge initiative as a whole includes three separate grants that have been awarded to San Francisco by the MacArthur Foundation. The first two grants were awarded in November 2018 and February 2021, both for $2 million. This third grant is a $1.2 million award. Um, we refer to it as a sustainability grant and that's the matter that's before you today. This grant was awarded to the city and county of San Francisco last year. This sustainability grant really continues the focus of the previous two SJC grants, reducing racial and ethnic disparities in the jail and addressing the jail population, maintaining overall jail population reductions. But this grant also includes an additional goal that's focused on developing mechanisms to sustain efforts and changes within the criminal justice system. And this third goal is really in place to ensure that the city and county of San Francisco focuses on ways to ensure that reform efforts are sustained across the different strategy areas. So a little bit in terms of our commitment to the initiative and our partnership with the MacArthur Foundation. The MacArthur Foundation Safety and Justice Challenge Initiative is really designed to analyze the overuse and misuse of jails and to eliminate racial disparities in jail, while also identifying and implementing broad-based policy solutions. The District Attorney's Office, along with our SJC partners, remain committed to these goals, and the MacArthur Foundation continues to show their support for the city and county of San Francisco through its investments. In fact, since 2018, the MacArthur Foundation has invested $5.25 million in San Francisco and in the Safety and Justice Challenge Initiative. Um, these investments have helped to lead to successful or to significant accomplishments, including, um, not limited to, supporting efforts to close County Jail 4, um, really laying the foundation for shared work to have conversations about reducing the jail population, which also helped to prime the city to rapidly respond to COVID. We've established a structured jail population review process, which is a team that's focused on jail population reductions and efforts to expedite case processing. Um, this jail population review team has expedited release and resolution for almost half of the cases that it has reviewed. 
Um, additionally, we've created and strengthened partnerships between system leaders and those with criminal justice experience. And the emphasis really here is really on that partnership. Um, we're trying to move beyond just seeking input um, and move beyond participation into active decision making and influence into decision making. And through the Safety and Justice Challenge, we've also worked to enhance transparency and data sharing across our criminal justice partners. Um, for example, the District Attorney's Office created a justice dashboard, which is a tool that can be used to understand the extent to which individuals convicted of crime in San Francisco are able to avoid subsequent criminal justice contact in the system. And so in closing, the Safety and Justice Challenge initiative was identified by the Board of Supervisors as a trusted space to ensure public accountability. Um, this is evidenced by the Board's prior decision to entrust this group with planning for the closure of CJ4. All the strategies that are put forth through the Safety and Justice Challenge initiative have a racial equity lens, include targeting systems change and enhanced community engagement. And through our convening and coordinating with our justice system partners through the Safety and Justice Challenge Initiative will continue to offer a unique space to collaborate on potential recommendations to sustain jail population reductions and to help those exiting the system to be more successful in the community. Um, we are very thankful to the MacArthur Foundation for their continued support and confidence in the city's ability to address racial and ethnic disparities and to sustain jail population reductions. Thank you so much for your time and attention today, and I am available to answer any questions you might have. Thank you. We appreciate um, the work that you're doing, and uh, we also wanted to understand, or I want to understand a little bit better, um, and what is the current, um, if, if any information that you have, do we understand that the current uh, incarceration uh, number at uh, our county jail at this point, and um, how, if any, that we're actually meeting the uh, grant goal for population reduction? Thank you for the question. Um, it's an active conversation that we're having right now to constantly look at and focus on what that jail population number is, which is close to 1,200. Um, it was 1,202 a few days ago. It is down now into the 1,100s. Um, but that is an active conversation that we're having in our SJC space with our SJC partners. Um, we, on a regular basis, collectively review data that's provided by the Sheriff's Office, um, who I should note has been an active and engaged participant in the in Safety and Justice Challenge initiative since it started. Um, they provide data on the average daily population, on bookings and releases, and so we, we regularly look at that, and partners have recently shared that they're interested in understanding more about the jail population, um, wanting to understand more about charges that bring people to jail and about trends over time. There's also been a recognition and agreement that we need to understand more about people's length of stay and the case characteristics that impact release decisions. Um, we need to know, know a little bit more and take a sort of a different comprehensive look at the system to understand the flow of people as they enter, exit, and potentially re-enter the criminal justice system. Um, and partners have also expressed a desire to understand more about the outstanding warrants and holds and how those 
um, case characteristics impact uh, the jail population and impact release decisions. And all of this is done with a racial equity lens. So I mention that because we are completely aware of the jail population and really trying to work with our partners to identify whether there are other data sources besides just the jail population data, not taking anything away from that. Really appreciate the sheriff's commitment to providing that data. But is there other data that we can glean from, say, the police department, from the district attorney's office, from the sheriff's office, from, you know, subsequent, like, adult probation, other partners, so that we can really understand that flow of people, uh, again, as I said, as they enter, exit, and potentially re-enter the system. Vice Chair Mandelman. Um, I want to thank the District Attorney's Office for, uh, for your work on this. Um, I'm glad that the work is continuing. Um, I think, uh, you know, we learned during the pandemic that um, I think that, that reducing the jail population if we don't have other strategies for preventing recidivism is not smart um, and that we need to have, uh, uh, that, that reducing the jail population is not an end in and of, of itself but should be reflective of better criminal justice strategies that are reducing crime in the city and giving people other options and getting folks who have uh, mental health or other needs um, care in different ways. So um, I plainly we still have a ton of work to do in that regard um, uh, and I think you know we see that work we're seeing it in the increasing jail population um, making this all the more important um, I think I'm co-sponsoring five and I'd like to be added as a co-sponsor to four thank you thank you I, I think the additional question that I have is I it sounds to me uh, from from what your explanation is, you're now trying to identify individuals in terms of the point of entry to our county jail, to their exit, uh, and potentially returning uh, in as a pattern um, and, and cycling through the system. Uh, what is the district attorney's office approach um, to meet the mandates of this grant? Because ultimately the goal is not just about, um, it, 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 so, yeah, I'm going to stop short right there. It's like I'm, gonna, I'm not going to try to dive deep into what the grant really is, is trying to do and what they're trying to say. You would know better than I do. But I, I'm trying to understand, um, besides analyzing individuals through the system, um, we would say that if they were to stay, there will be a coordination, if an individual is staying in terms of like determination of the length of stay uh, in county jail would be a um, I don't say, it's not coordination, but it's a system that is from the, the police department and then district attorney's office, and then now with the, and then with, of course, the sheriff's department. The grant, though, is, you know, granted to the district attorney's office, and I'm trying to under, better understand then what is the district attorney's office view its role in, in this um, dynamic, because it could probably go to different city departments. I'm not saying taking away from the district attorney's office. Please do not get me wrong. I'm just trying to understand now that the district attorney's office is taking the lead uh, in accepting this grant and, and evaluating and, and what is then general approach uh, to, to meet the grant's demand. Yeah, thank you for the question. Um, I'm gonna try to unpack that a little bit. <laughs> so I would say 
overall, the Safety and Justice Challenge Initiative is really designed to be a partnership across the justice system partners that I mentioned earlier today. So adult probation, Department of Public Health, the District Attorney's Office, Public Defender's Office, Sheriff's Office, and the court. Um, and so from its inception in 2018, and even there was, there was a grant prior to 2018 that was a smaller grant that came through in 2017, which really led the groundwork for the work then, and the accomplishments with the Justice Dashboard that we've been able to develop. But even from the beginning, it's always been a partnership across justice system agencies, and it's been an approach that to, to problem solve and to find solutions that can address increases in the jail population, because those are going to happen over time. Um, but also, to, to Supervisor Mandelman's point, to you know, find ways that we can better address the complex needs that individuals have as they end up in the criminal justice system. Because if we are able to effectively ad address those needs and those challenges um, in ways that position people for success, then that stops that cycle from happening. Um, but really, it's been a partnership over time and it's evolved over time and I would say the community engagement piece is a very big piece in the sustainability grant and a big focus for us for the next two years. Um, again, to not just bring in that vo the voices of those who have been through the criminal justice system so that I mean, they have the answers, they can educate us and inform us on potential policy recommendations, but also to just embed that as a partnership um, and embed that as a way for for individuals with that experience to influence decision making. Um, so it's not, I say that because it's not the district attorney's office trying to drive and dictate the approach of the safety and justice challenge initiative. It's really designed to be a collective partnership and we recognize that there's progress that we've made but there are, there's also areas where we um, would like to make more progress. We haven't been able to really address the dis racial and ethnic disparities in the jail. We have we have a lot that we need to do in that space. And we also have uh, advancements that we need to make in terms of case processing, just to understand not just the flow of people through the system, but how case processing can impact the time that people spend in jail. Um, and if there are ways that we can offer policy recommendations to sort of expedite that release in a way that's gonna you know, stay in line with public safety and, and also recognize people's rights, then we wanna do that. Great, I appreciate that, and I think that I would say I am. A, I would want to say that um, both as a budget chair and I, I want to continue to see investments in our county jails in terms of programming like uh, Five Keys, like partnership with City College of San Francisco. Uh, we have the first women's center uh, in the nation in our county jail, uh, specifically addressing uh, women who. Uh, the woman population uh, incarcerated, uh, and I think those are the things that it's a. If we're, we're if we want to put our money where our mouth is, meaning for meaningful, sustainable, long-term uh, public safety uh, solutions, it is the investments and and it's the reduce reduction of recidivism is really where it's at, um, as well as prevention of of crimes, and I, and I think that's actually part of the solution of crime prevention is to really invest so that people do not repeat in this cycle. Um, I do hope that it will be part of those conversation and, and, and tracking as well to see individuals that actually end up staying 
be able to get those types of support. Um, and I think that's including, I, I was actually, I do agree with Vice Chair Mandelman. It's the investment. What? I know. <laughs> Um, in terms of investments for those that in the population currently in uh, county jail, but really the path to exit, um, in, and that's including, frankly, shelter, housing, job, you know, job training, life skills, and workforce development um, as, as a path to that. Um, and so with that, um, thank you for that. Uh, do we have questions about item number five? Okay, let's go to item number five. Good morning, um, Madam Chair and honorable, honorable members of this committee. My name is Tina Nunzober. I'm the managing attorney for the Economic Crimes Unit of the DA's office. I'm here today to present to you as to agenda item number five, which is a request for to accept and expend funds for a grant for organized retail theft vertical prosecution. It's $2,050,000 over three years. It's a one-time grant funded by the state and administered by the Board of State and Community Corrections. Um, the funds are mainly to fund the salary for an ADA to vertically prosecute the most prolific retail theft offenders in our city. It also will fund a DA investigator who will work side-by-side -side with the ADA and will work solely on ORT cases. Um, these funds will allow the DA's office to have a specialized caseload so that we can focus our efforts in a more effective and efficient manner. Um, the current ADA who was assigned to this, this uh, grant has approximately 20 cases right now and we just got up and running with this grant on October 1st. Um, so we only expect those numbers to increase. As the board knows, um, this has been, re organized retail theft has been a big problem across the country and in San Francisco, as we've all seen in a lot of those videos that go viral on social media. So this will assist us in um, tackling that problem and making a dent in it, um, getting the public to feel safe so that they can go and shop in person. Um, vertical prosecution will be from charging through to disposition of the cases. And this is perhaps the best way to prosecute any case because it ensures better outcomes for public safety um, and allows us to tailor rehabilitative programs for defendants who would like those opportunities and are amenable to it. Um, we've already had some early successes and some examples are um, we've been able to charge a series of thefts that were committed main, mainly by one individual, but also in conjunction with a couple of others at a very popular clothing store in San Francisco, and the losses totaled over $150,000. We also charged a series of organized group thefts at a toiletry store in Westfield uh, Union Square Mall, and those thefts amounted to over 40000 We've been able to, to join together outstanding cases for individuals involved in organized retail theft and put all those cases together in the caseload of this one ADA so that she can tailor outcomes for them that take into account all of their cases so that we can ensure public safety and find an appropriate disposition for these defendants. Um, also, this request, it's retroactive due to the timelines and the various deadlines for necessary review by the different agencies in the city government. So this has been the earliest that we've been able to get it to this committee. 
This is also a reimbursement grant, so we have not at this juncture received any funds as we need the Board of Supervisors resolution before we can request reimbursement. Again, thank you for your time, and I'm very happy to answer any questions. Thank you, um, Supervisor Malkar. I'd just like to be added as a co-sponsor for item five, please. Thank you. I think um, this is an interesting moment uh, to call the, both items together, the four and the five. Um, and as we, you know, on one hand, we're talking about accepting the grants to reduce jail incarceration. And on the other hand, we're also accepting the grant to figure out tackling uh, retail theft uh, crime. This is not a, a question really directing uh, toward the district attorneys alone. I think it's an overall uh, a criminal justice system because whether the, um, clearly the district attorney's uh, office play a role, key role in this system. Um, but I, I, I think this is a moment where um, to recognize that to talk about criminal justice reform in general across the board, uh, both in the front end of holding people accountable for the uh, crime that they have committed, but also to really look at and address recidivism for the long term and for a true meaningful public safety. Um, it actually does go hand in hand. I, I don't see that it's in, in conflict, um, but I do see that it, it requires a comprehensive conversation. It shouldn't be a choices of either incarceration and prosecution and, and, and not. And it, it's, it, it, it's conf if that were the choices, then it would be conflicting choices. I think there's many steps in between uh, and before and after. Um, so I look forward to uh, perhaps a more comprehensive um, dialogue with both our, with all our law enforcement agencies, from our police departments, our district attorneys, our public defenders, um, our sheriff's department, to, to really have this um, comprehensive conversation around what does it really make, uh, what, what are the solutions, a variety of options, I believe, uh, in programming and solutions that actually keep San Francisco safe. Uh, I think that these items, both four and five, which actually have the co-sponsors uh, of both Supervisor Myrna Malgar and Vice Chair Mendelman, um, I think that articulates that this body, for the very least, the budget committee, believe that the investments in both racial and um, ethnic disparities that has to be resolved in our you know, county jail population and believing in reducing um, incarceration rate and long-term recidivism effort, uh, as well as holding people accountable for the work that they do. I, I think that there is that, um, there is not this black and white choices, and there is a lot, a spectrum of criminal justice reform and uh, solutions um, that, that could work together. So I look forward to seeing more of that in, in Congress, both in you know, dialogue and public hearings, as well as I, I look forward to like meetings and briefings, uh, reports, like help us to have a better understanding about how to address public safety for the long haul. Uh, with that, thank you, and uh, I appreciate it, and well, let's go to public comment on these two items. Thank you, Madam Chair. We now invite members of the public who have joined us today uh, who wish to speak on either items four or five uh, to line up now to speak uh, along the windows to your right and my left. 
Madam Chair, we have no speakers. Thank you. Seeing no public comments, public comment is now closed. And let's move these two items to full board with recommendation. And with that, a roll call, please. And on that motion to forward both the resolution in item four and the ordinance in item five to the full board with a positive recommendation, Vice Chair Mandelman. Mandelman, aye. Member Melgar. Melgar, aye. Chair Chan. Aye. Chan, aye. We have three ayes. Thank you. And the motion passes. Uh, Mr. Clerk, please call item number six. Yes, item number six is a resolution adopting a fixed two-year budgetary cycle for the Airport, Port, and Public Utilities Commission for fiscal years 2024 to 2025 and 2025 to 2026, defining terms and setting deadlines. Madam Chair. Thank you. And today we have Director Anna Dooning here for our Mayor's um, Budget Director. Um, the floor is yours. Thank you for being here. Good morning, supervisors. So this is the biannual resolution to adopt a fixed two-year budget for our three enterprise departments, meaning in May, we will introduce these departments' budgets and you will be considering them um, for two years. As you know, we do two-year budgeting for all city departments, but for these three in particular, the second year of their budget is fixed, meaning when they come back in an off year, they can only change certain things within their budget within particular parameters. Um, but this year, their full budgets will be open, um, and you will be reviewing them in May. And happy to answer questions. The controller's office is also here and can answer any technical questions. Thank you. So, okay. Well, I mean, I think I look forward to seeing the uh, mayor's budget um, for proposal um, for this uh, June. I think it's, it's um, rather challenging uh, times. Um, I appreciate the fact that we are continuing with the commitment to have a fixed two-year budget cycle uh, and proposal. The challenge though I have um, to, to better understand that while we move forward with this is that you know we uh, committed to that uh, and we, we signed the budget uh, in uh, last uh, in 2023, um, but shortly after that, you know, we recognized that the mayor has uh, uh, was uh, proposing a mid-year budget cut as well. So I'm trying to understand as we move forward with with this um, is that what how how do we and I, I, I understand, I, I think part, I partly understand, but I'm also partly confused with the mid-year budget cut. Uh, could, could we just have a little bit of a discussion and, and if you could elaborate a little bit um, about, you know, clearly we, this year, we also have the uh, enterprise agencies and being part of that uh, budget proposal. We, we know that we um, going to, of course, part of it is it seems like the mayor is saying, hey, enterprise agency, you're on your own. you got to balance your budget, and we'll, we'll try to take care of the general fund, funded departments. Um, what are your thoughts, and how do we tackle to make sure that, you know, when we commit to a two-year budget, we, we commit to a two-year budget, and that's across the board, including the enterprise agencies. Uh, and and how, how do we prevent the potential um, mid-year budget cut? Thanks to the question, Supervisor. So the resolution in front of you is particular to the PUC, the airport, and the MTA. Um, and we're not subject to mid-year cuts because mid-year cuts were only general fund departments. And these departments have their own revenue sources that they rely on to run their budgets every year. 
that being said, they have their own particular challenges with their revenue sources as well um, that sometimes are related to what's happening in the broader general fund and sometimes not. Um, with regards to mid-year budget cuts and how we had planned a two-year budget, um, I'd actually love to answer some of those questions in relation to the next item, which is specifically about the general fund, our projections for next year, why those projections have changed since we adopted the two-year budget just in July. Um, so I think those will be more relevant to the next presentation if you don't mind holding on those questions. No, I think I think the particularly just wanted to point to, again, SFMTA, knowing that they actually are tackling a significant deficit um, and is, is that... I am looking forward to hearing more about how are they tackling and balancing their budget and commit to a two-year budget cycle as well. And, and that's, that's all I'm going to say for now um, is and to kind of see how the mayor's office uh, can provide that support and guidance uh, for these enterprise agencies, particularly SFMTA. Um, and I, would, I, I say this also with our chair and vice chair of uh, Transportation, the County Transportation Authority being here as the, their other hats um, and to, to kind of really look at SFMTA and making sure that our transit system is whole and not have to tackle in the mid-year uh, in any way and, and actually be realistic about both their deficits and projection of revenues and actual spending. With that, thank you. And uh, Supervisor Malkar? Just wanted for clarity for the public, um, this resolution is only airport port and PUC, not the MTA. Right? That's correct. Sorry, okay. I was speaking about all our enterprises, but the, this resolution is specific, yes, to just yeah, the port, the you. PUC, and the airport. Thank you. <laughs> and with that, let's go to public comments on this item. Yes, members of the public have joined today who wish to speak on this resolution. Now is your opportunity to approach the lectern and address this committee regarding this item. Madam Chair, we have no speakers. Thank you. And seeing no public comments, public comment is now closed. And I would like to move this item to full board with recommendation. A roll call, please. And on that motion, how to forward this resolution to the full board with a positive recommendation, Vice Chair Mandelman. Mandelman, aye. Member Malgar. Malgar, aye. Chair Chan. Aye. Chan, aye. We have three ayes. Thank you, and the motion passes. And with that, let's call item number seven. Yes, item number seven is a hearing on the city and county's five-year financial plan update uh, for fiscal year 2024 to 2025 through fiscal year 2027 through 2028, and the mayor's budget instructions for the fiscal year of 2024 to 2025 in fiscal year 2025 to 2026. Madam Chair. Thank you. And again, we have uh, Director Anna Dooning here with us. And also we have Carol Liu from the Controller's Office. Great. Um, good morning again, members of the Budget and Finance Committee. I am joined today by Carol Liu from the Controller's Office. We will be tag teaming. Um, this presentation was um, the same presentation as the budget instructions that were delivered to departments in December, but what it contains is also um, the updates to our five-year financial plan, also referred to as the joint report. That report is a projection of the city's expenditures and revenues over fi a five-year period. It's updated every other year, so this is a four-year period, and um, it informs the mayor's budget instructions. So I'm going to be talking about it 
holistically introducing the presentation, um, talking about the big picture. I'm going to hand it over to Carol to get into the details on the city's revenues and then talk about what the mayor's instructions were to departments. All right. Uh, my apologies. Uh, through the chair to the budget director, if you could just lift your mic up just a little yes. bit. Just so through. Thank you much. Okay, so an overview of our financial projections. Um, this is not going to be a positive presentation today. We're in a tough spot. Uh, we are looking at a $245 million deficit right now in the next fiscal year, followed by a $554 million deficit in the following year. And then it gets worse should we take no corrective actions in the coming years. The mid-year budget reductions that the chair referred to earlier are incorporated into this forecast. So we assume that anything that is ongoing from reductions that we made in the current year will continue to be ongoing in the years to come. So this projection, this deficit would have been higher if not for those mid-year reductions. We will need additional reductions as part of the mayor's budget instructions to balance the coming years. And we've asked departments to find ways to reduce 10% of their general fund support um, in both years and submit to our office contingency proposals should the outlook worsen. So I'm gonna get into the details of the financial plan update. So over the forecast period, the deficit grows to 1.3 billion. Um, this is a big and alarming number. Right now, our expected expenditure growth grows by over 18% over this forecast period, while revenues are only at around 2 to 3% growth. And just for context, almost every year we've been up here and we've projected some amount of deficit. So if we go back to fiscal year 2021, right before the pandemic, what we were seeing then is that our revenue growth that had been um, that had grown unabated really since we had recovered from the Great Recession, then our revenue growth was around 7%. So things were slowing down, but still growing. Our expenditure growth was still about the same. So now we're looking at expenditure growth that's nearly flat. Meanwhile, I'm sorry, revenue growth that's nearly flat, while our revenues, if we don't take, make different decisions, take corrective actions, um, just far outpace what we can afford. Okay, so we balanced the budget in July, and we balanced the second year of the budget as well, and now we're looking at a gap of 245 million. So what has changed since then? The main thing that has changed is that we've further reduced our revenue expectations based on new information. Some of the key areas that have been reduced are transfer, hotel, and sales taxes, and Carol will speak more to some of the trends we're seeing there. One of the big expenditures that has increased since we balanced that budget is healthcare costs. And the healthcare system came to you all about a month ago and explained some of the trends we're seeing in healthcare, where this is some of the highest rates of growth we've seen in a long time. Historically, healthcare costs um, have been at a growth rate of around four to 5%, um, and now we're seeing 9% growth there. Another thing that is new in this forecast is that we are projecting and showing the cost of multi-year inflationary growth on our CBO contracts. And that's because a new ordinance that you all passed um, a month or two ago asked that we put this into our financial projections so we can see what it would cost if we continued to inflate all of our general fund CBO contracts by inflation. So that is a new cost that is in this forecast. And finally, fund balance, which is Savings we get from unspent dollars in prior years or slightly better revenues, we're spreading that out over the forecast period instead of assuming that we use any available fund balance in the two-year budget. 
All right, if you wanna go into the next slide, major assumptions here. So again, very little growth in our major tax revenues. We'll talk more about that soon. Salary and benefits. Um, so as you know, most of our contracts are open this year. So the assumption we make is that they grow by CPI next year and at the same schedule as our police and fire contracts. We also assume a 7.2% rate of return on our pension investments. Finally, there's a number, number of other assumptions built into the forecast, including some CPI growth on other non-personnel costs, the IHSS wage agreements that we came to last year, that we are fully funding what is proposed in our 10-year capital and our ICT plans and numerous other updates. So this table just shows sort of the bottom line when we add up all of those things at the top, our sources or our revenues from the current year. We're showing that those decline by 9.6 million next year and then grow modestly. Meanwhile, at the bottom, we are showing our costs increase from the current year by 245 million and then um, at a much higher pace after that. And so the two-year deficit that we will need to balance by June is around $800 million. All right, with that, I'll turn it over to Carol to talk a bit more about what's happening with our revenues. Um, so pictured here, um, or not pictured here, but here are some um, key revenue assumptions in our forecast. So the first is that high office vacancies um, continue to negatively um, impact property, business, and transfer taxes. Um, in business taxes specifically, we're seeing significant rates of tax disputes and litigation requiring the city to reserve collections um, for litigation risk. Um, the hospitality industry um, is expected to recover after the plan period, which is different from um, our prior forecast. Um, and the city has experienced, so we've, we're thinking that the city has experienced rapid bounce back um, after the pandemic, but you'll see in the slides later that there's actually plateauing. Um, and similarly in local and state sales tax, there's as plateauing as well. Um, and so we're scaling down um, the forecast. And finally, um, one-time sources, which had helped to balance prior year budgets, um, including FEMA and fund balance, are budgeted through 26-27, but um, will be depleting in the, depleted through the plan period. Um, so just stepping back from the forecast, um, this chart reminds us of where revenue currently is relative to um, the near past. Um, so the chart, the, the stack on the left shows um, our most economically sensitive revenues um, with a pre-pandemic peak at 1819. Um, and then the stack on the right shows um, the same taxes um, where they are ending in 2223. So as you can see, we're still down 20% from where we were before. Um, and recent trends in the next few slides show that while things are projected to improve very modestly, we're in a moment of no or slow growth in our tax revenues. Um, so just to show you office vacancies, um, they're currently at historic highs, much higher than the dot-com bust and the Great Recession. Um, and this is primarily because of changes in the way we work. Um, weekly office attendance is about 50% of pre-pandemic levels, and so businesses need less office space. Um, as of Q3 um, 2023, office vacancies increased to 30.4%, and as of the next quarter, uh, Q4 2023, which isn't shown here, the numbers are worse at 32.1%, according to JLL. Um, the forecast expects, the um, five-year financial plan forecast expects vacancies to get worse through 2024 before it starts to get better. Um, 
office vacancies, um, as mentioned before, impact our biggest taxes, um, property transfer and business. So a bit more about transfer tax. Um, this chart shows transfer tax revenues in orange for the largest, most volatile transactions, and in blue um, for the smaller, more stable transactions. Um, and you can see the three huge dips, um, the dot-com bust, the Great Recession, and then um, where we are now. Um, and as you kind of see called out here, where it's the slowest it's ever been since 2011. And so our forecast reflects that reality. Um, as mentioned before, the hospitality industry, um, the rebound is kind of stalling. Um, revenue per available room is a metric that is closely correlated with hotel tax. Um, and that's what's depicted here. In the solid blue line, you can see a huge drop in RevPAR as folks um, sheltered in place during COVID and um, a very steep rebound as our economy began to recover. Um, but as you see circled, in fall of 2023, we started seeing signs that this rebound is stalling and our forecast reflects RevPAR not recovering until after the plan period, which is in line with other industry observers. Um, in local and state sales tax, we're similarly seeing some stalling um, or drops. Um, in orange, we show California's same quarter prior year sales tax growth, and in blue, it's San Francisco. Um, so the state recovered from the pandemic earlier than the city, but then the city exceeded the state's growth later in 21 and 22, as shown in this table. Um, however, both the city and the state slowed um, down and actually went negative in Q2 20, 2023. Um, and if we were to extend this graph by one more quarter, which we just got data for, um, the line would be even more negative for both San Francisco and the state. Um, and finally, this slide shows the extraordinary levels of one-time sources that were used to balance prior year budgets. Um, these sources include more than $600 million of ARPA, the American Rescue Plan Act funds um, from the federal government, as well as general fund reserves, such as the Rainy Day Reserve and Budget Stabilization Reserve. Um, the joint report forecast assumes a much lower level of one-time revenues um, as these sources um, are being depleted. Um, in addition, the projection assumes about $350 million of FEMA reimbursements, over the next three years, but delays and changes in guidelines um, pose a potential threat to the source. We'll turn um, the expenditures back to Anna. All right, so that's a snapshot of what's happening with our very slow growing revenues. Meanwhile, um, expenditures, if we just, again, it's a base case assumption, if we project nothing else changes, um, then the largest expenditure that is growing is salary and benefits, and those would increase by over $500 million over the plan period. Um, baselines are also part of this forecast, so those grow to around, um, by around $200 million by the last year of the plan period. It also includes our newest baseline, the Student Success Fund, which grows to $35 million of, a, of general fund next year, and then $60 million by 2027-28. Other major costs include city operating costs for real estate, our capital commitments, repaying debt, um, the cost of PUC's rates on general fund departments, and that um, implementation of multi-year inflation on general fund grants that I mentioned earlier. Other major costs, all these details are in the actual report itself, so these are just a few examples. Um, but we're assuming the cost of continuing to operate all of our shelters even after some state grants expire. 
on following through in our commitments to subsidizing housing for formerly homeless individuals, also known as our loss program. IHSS is also a major area of cost growth. And then just to highlight the biggest area of cost for us, our salary and benefits, and this is just a snapshot that looks at total salaries and all our benefits have grown by over 30% in a five-year period. So this is both new positions we've added, wage agreements we've made, the cost of health care, the cost of pensions, and all the other benefits that we provide, um, but that costs nearly $4 billion to the general fund. And then finally, this is just to highlight sort of the extraordinary growth that we're seeing in healthcare costs right now. Um, Nine to 10% healthcare costs finally caught up with inflation this year, and we're seeing um, levels of costs we have not seen in a very long time. Then things that are not yet in this forecast, but we will be um, working with the controller's office to update very soon. Um, some of this will show up in the six-month report that we will be sharing and publishing by the end of the month, early next month. And then some of this will be updated when we do the full update to this report in March. Um, but things that we are following closely, um, elevated interest rates, good news from the Fed, the interest rates are starting to come down, but it may take a while to really have a full impact on our own projections. But in the meantime, higher interest rates continue to dampen business investments, real estate transactions, as well as our own costs. We are seeing really high levels of assessment appeals. Um, I believe they've nearly tripled in the last year. Um, so this appeals volume, it can take a while to have an actual impact on our property tax revenue, but we are starting to take a closer look at that and figuring out whether or not we need to reduce some of our property tax assumptions because of the appeals volume that we are seeing. The state budget is also in a difficult place. Um, they projected at least a $68 billion shortfall. Governor Newsom thinks it's only $38 billion. Either way, it's a very large shortfall. Um, and so we are tracking, as of the governor's budget announcement last week, potential impacts to us. Um, so far, still making sense of the numbers, but some uh, potential reductions to ERAF, not all of it, but they're proposing to change the formula that would take back some of the ERAF funding that the city currently gets, um, as well as funding for numerous other programs, um, and we should have more details of that in the coming weeks. And then finally, retirement, um, our contribution rates move with the market. At the time of this report, um, year-to-date returns were negative. Now they're a little positive, but something we're monitoring, um, and those the rates of returns can trigger higher employer contributions. So with all of that, um, the mayor's budget instructions this year, her priorities um, should sound familiar. They continue to be improving public safety and street conditions. Go to the next slide. Um, citywide economic vitality, reducing homelessness, and transforming the way we deliver mental health services in the city, and then making sure that we are accountable and equitable in the way we deliver services and spend our dollars. While we try to maintain those priorities, we will need to make significant reductions in general fund support. So we've asked departments to propose reductions of 10% each year, as well as, again, contingency proposals, where they say if we had to reduce another 5%, these are some of the options, so that we can consider those in light of all the risks that we just mentioned. These budget reductions will help address 
portions of this $800 million shortfall, it will not solve the entire shortfall. So we've also been convening departments to talk about citywide strategies to look at other solutions beyond just what departments can do on their own within their budgets. Other instructions we've given to departments is to implement the mid-year cuts that are ongoing into the um, coming years of the budget. So if we decided not to um, start a program this year and it was contemplated for funding next year, that we would not be funding that program and that service in the coming year. We're asking departments not to add new FTE and instead prioritizing filling existing vacancies, especially related to public safety and essential department operations. And in the current year, we're asking departments to only fill those FTE, which are critical to their core department operations, while using additional vacancies for potential budget savings. Finally, we're asking departments to focus on our core work, our core operations and services that our residents rely on, and consider eliminating costs that support non-essential, discretionary, or redundant service areas. A few other reminders about the budget process this year. So our non-general fund departments must balance within their own budgets, um, the MTA, and then the PUC port and airport, whose resolution we just introduced, will have fixed two-year budgets. You will see those on May 1st. We will also introduce additional departments on May 1st, just to um, give ourselves time to review all department budgets, and so those departments are listed there. Departments are currently holding um, budget transparency meetings, public budget meetings, going to their commissions to start talking about their budget proposals, so that final note is just a reminder on those. And then just a calendar. I mentioned the six-month report will be really important to understanding how we're doing in the current year with regards to our revenue projections. And then you can see a number of other deliverables that lead up to um, budget committee hearings in June. And with that, uh, we can take any of your questions. Thank you. Um, I agree with you that it's very similar theme. We have heard it before um, that the mayor proposed in the way to tackle both balancing the budget but uh, and, and really uh, proposing the budget, uh, both revenue and, and spending. Um, how has it been, meaning now that we, we, we saw, you know, partly is, um, I, I, I want to do an evaluation of the mayor's, um, you know, strategies to tackle particularly in terms of both public safety services, making sure that they're funded, uh, as well as um, revenue, generating revenue and tax revenue and boosts. Like, I think her focus has been in the last two fiscal years focusing on downtown, making sure that it boosts its economic activities and, and to be able to bring back um, or increase or boost uh, tax revenue. Uh, just, but now we are looking at the projection and the outlook and say uh, since July of 2023, uh, which covered the period of APAC, um, that was really uh, something that we say as a city that will bring us back, um, you know, economic activities and vibrancy. And we want to see the boost of both hotel revenues and sales tax revenues. But right now, what we're seeing, according to the projection and, and the outlook today before us in your presentation, is saying, no, that's not what we're seeing right now. Um, we, not only that, we have seen a plateau, and that we is now seeing as, in fact, we're just seeing it flat, and, and, and it, there's no boost. There, there was no 
increase uh, as we thought that it was going to be. So I think the question back to the mayor's uh, office and, and the mayor is that uh, then what are our strategy right now moving forward if the strategies that we put forth and agree did not quite work. And, and I want to say that that's including um, the thought of about bringing back activities downtown. In the last budget, we in fact had um, provided tax exemption uh, for specific zip, co zip codes covering downtown, um, saying that if you are a new business and you're starting um, uh, an office space and coming to San Francisco in these areas, you have a first million, one million dollars gross receipts exemption. We're basically giving it away, and tax giveaway. Have those strat? It, can we confirm and saying, you know, we we tried it in July. Since July, those strategies just are not pending out. Sure. Thanks for the question, Supervisor Chan. So, what we saw during the pandemic in the aftermath was a seismic shift in the economic foundation of this city and of cities really across this country. I don't believe at any point the mayor has said that she has the solution to changing what happened during post-pandemic. There are a number of things that we think could make a difference, but those things are not going to make a difference in a matter of months or a year. It's about starting to lay the foundation of the future of this city and thinking, is our tax structure fair? Is it built to make sure we can sustain the revenue we need to support the services for our residents? Is the way we think about the use of downtown the right way to think about downtown in a future where maybe people aren't just coming to downtown to work, but to travel, to be entertained, to get together with friends? All these things are going to take many years to change. So we're in this period of sort of structural shifting. Um, and along the way, we're gonna to have to continue um, iterating and adjusting as we figure out what the future of the city looks like. So there are a number of things that the mayor has prioritized to start, like I said, laying the foundation and taking steps towards bringing back the city's economy. But there's not any one thing that I believe we're going to be able to do in a given budget that's gonna change that trajectory the following year. I agree. It's not a one fiscal year that we can problem solve the both uh, what we have lost since pandemic, which is 2020, um, and and also to be really able to look at our recovery in a very realistic lens. Um, but most importantly, I do believe though we're in a very critical juncture. FEMA, we have. Uh, FEMA was what I consider as what we uh, it's a one-time spending, and we we really hit. Uh, a wall at this moment with FEMA reimbursement. Uh, we see that the state budget deficit, um, while I think the governor was actually uh, now deemed optimistic in terms of the deficit, he was projected at 38 million, but the state's uh, budget and legislative analyst is really projecting to say it's really 58 billion um, you know, of the deficit. And so we do see, and I agree with you, the potential of ERAF going away 
hopefully not entirely, but we know that certainly it's not, oh, I'm not optimistic about what we can get from the state at this moment. And so all of those cumulative to the projected deficits of $1.3 billion of what we're seeing, not immediately, you know, in the, in the few fiscal year out of 2027, but we, that's what we do here. We plan for the future and making sure um, that we don't get to that point. It's a, it's a warning of the outlook and that the decisions that we make today in this fiscal year and the ne next fiscal years are actually really critical. It's what I really believe in. And, and I, I really look forward to seeing this and we had these conversations. I think when the mayor announced the mid-year budget cut last uh, December last fall, um, what I have a co in conversation with our, you know, the city's budget and legislative analysis to really look at what we can do at this moment to start structural changes that really prevent us uh, in a space in 2027 to look at a $1.3 billion deficit. I, I really believe we can do things now at this moment, besides the mayor's like mid-year budget reduction, that we can actually do some structural changes to, to prevent, that prevent that future. That is with two things, though, I think, or a few things. One is with the recognition that we have plateaued with our tax revenue. Uh, we, we need to be very realistic about that, and, 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 and some of the strategies that we put forward may not yield the results that we, we want. And so what is the, the timeline for us to address you know, correct the course, so to speak. Is it, are, are we gonna wait till two years later or should we just evaluate it within on a six months every six half year basis to say this is not working let let's let's shift and, and, and let's change the course so w what is it that we could work together on to say this is not working and, w and we need to make sure of that because while that is the freezing of the staffing and then eliminate the positions that are vacant um, at the same time we also know that the two things are happening is that the length of hiring the staff that we actually need it, it is still outstanding it, it's just we're not resolving that problem. And we're still short staff on many city departments. And that's nurses, 911 dispatcher, and, and, and many, many of these critical positions are still vacant. So what do we do with that? It's not just about eliminating positions or freezing the hiring, then we can problem solve, because it doesn't really solve the critical services that the mayor and the board value. Um, so with that said, you know, I, I, I think I want to articulate um, my thoughts is, is really to focus on a few approach. Um, and it's, I think it's really aligned with what your presentation today, um, you know, given the fact that uh, I really am looking forward to see analysis um, to how do we maximize government's performance and service delivery uh, in the ratio of workers, of both managers and workers. What is is that within this government structure, we know that there is specific hiring and staffing that we must have in order for the city to run efficiently. But that's not necessarily go, like just, it's not a one size fits all approach when it comes to staffing and hiring. So what do we do? And I think uh, it, it is what I have tasked the budget analyst uh, office to do to evaluate and look at. Um, another part of it is that we know that there is contracting issue that we have. Uh, we have over a billion dollars of city contracting annually in and out. And so I have also asked the task, like the budget and legislative analysts, to look at um, contracting 
um, and, and what do we do with these contracts? And frankly, at this moment, both like Department of Homelessness and Su Supportive Housing, as well as Department of Public Health, coming before this board asking for contract waiver extension without it, as a sole source, it, it's a difficult decision to make when there are such a pro problem uh, with both uh, making sure these contracts are actually delivering the results and the, uh, uh, that we're actually looking for. The only way to really sometimes to make sure that we're getting the best services is to make sure that we actually have a competing, competitive bidding process. And without it, it's hard for the city and for uh, as a whole to evaluate, are we getting the big, uh, best value for our money? And so I, I think that's a, some, a conversation to be had and we must have. And I think the third part is, uh, I, I think we, we're talking about efficiency and government efficiency is like some of these city departments, are there redundancy in terms of both their roles and services? Can we see a future of consolidation and adjustment? for these, these uh, city departments to function better. Um, and so I look forward to those conversations and seeing the, I, I take this very seriously at a, at a projection of $1.3 billion of, of deficit uh, for 2027. Uh, it's actually really not a distant future. I'm sure that that's what keeps you up at night as well, Director Dooning, and I appreciate all the work that you're doing. And of course, you know, um, for the controller's office, I also appreciate just having those uh, information and data points and help us make some adjustments Investments and decision-making, you know, um, make this decision-making process more objective and, and data-driven. And I think that's what we need to do. And I look forward to seeing that um, conversation. And unfortunately, like usually in the past, when the time is good, we can wait until having this conversation in June. Um, I don't think that's the case. And we've been having this since, really frankly, even last summer, since the mayor signed the budget, we know that it wasn't really a complete budget, so to speak. We knew that there was many problems with it and we need to continue to problem solve. Um, with that, Supervisor Malgar. Thank you, Chair Chan. Um, thank you, Director Duny. <laughs> uh, this is Grim. I had a, a couple questions about your presentation. Um, so in the mayor's plan, um, you had a slide at, that talked about the budget instructions, how departments are charged with consolidation, um, removal of non-essential activities, uh, redundant activities. And, you know, like Chair Chan, I have had the honor to work both in the executive branch and the legislative branch. And, um, you know, just personal experience is that sometimes activities are viewed by departments by their department, um, and not often about redundant services across departments. So my question to you is who, who is gonna make that decision? What's essential, non-essential? And who is looking at a comprehensive uh, plan for consolidating activities across departments? Because you know the tendency is to protect our own, right? So um, that's one question. Um, my second question was about um, sort of the, the um, revenues, because um, like last year, this year, there's been a lot of talk about, you know, what can we do to uh, reduce the burden on taxpayers, businesses, or whatever to incentivize, um, you know, growth or recovery. Um, and I fear that 
uh, because we have such big looming deficits uh, or income that we want to make up for, we look at the big ticket items and not the smaller ones, which tend to be the ones that are significant to small businesses and neighborhood-based businesses. And so what I've often heard uh, from like restaurants and, you know, uh, hospitality, uh, smaller businesses, which is our bread and butter, really, that's what brings people to San Francisco, right, is that it often feels like a death by a thousand cuts. Um, and I've heard that phrase so often because it's not one thing, as, as Chair Chan had said, um, it's uh, multiple little things, the charge by DPH, the charge by DPW, the planning department fee, you know, all these little things. And so again, I worry about there being like a comprehensive review of what will actually make a difference for the small guys, which is our bread and butter. It's like what makes our city interesting and quirky and you know people wanting to come here it's not often like the the big ones you know the big corporations you can go to any city in America and you know you will get that so um, I'm wondering you know what your thoughts are about that and, and who is going to be making uh, those decisions you know uh, for the mayor's office as this progresses thank you chair thank you sure Thanks for the question, Supervisor Melgar, and welcome to the Budget Committee in a challenging year. Um, first, in sort of the siloed nature of departments and the services they perform and the pro programs that they provide. So early on this year, even before we knew the deficit was looking like what it was, we, our office, the mayor's office, started to bring together city departments to give them a preview of what we thought was coming and um, talk to them about working together and taking a citywide lens to this problem and inviting them to think beyond their departments and their silos and being protective of the programs they have and thinking about if, if we're going to get out of this, we need to solve this all together. It's not a single department that's going to figure this out. It's not just the mayor's office. It's not just the controller's office. And so we've laid the groundwork for some of that work. Um, we're bringing departments together. We've invited the controller's office to lead a number of working groups where we can survey how are we delivering the service area across multiple multiple departments, is this the most efficient way to provide it, which department has the, either the subject matter expertise or the staffing and the capacity to do this really well, and considering, you know, consolidating, streamlining, or making efficient, more efficient a number of programs and services. So that is starting, and it will be, um, we'll have a number of departments at the table to help make those decisions. Um, and then, of course, we bring many of those to you. I'll be in conversation with um, Supervisor Chan as the budget chair. We'll be discussing all those leading up to and then during June and July. So I see this as a, as a collective undertaking. Just on small businesses, the mayor shares that viewpoint that small businesses are the bread and butter of this city. They make it vibrant, interesting. They enliven our neighborhoods. Um, we so depend on them. And she is continuing to push forward streamlining reforms, make ways of doing small business easier in that city. And she is not giving up on that priority. So any tax reform that we're considering, whether we can do that in the budget or it requires legislative change because the number of taxes would need to go to the voters. But if we are considering anything, um, it will be that lens of continuing to protect our small businesses and make it easier for new small businesses to start and thrive. Thank you. I, I, I am... 
I I think along the last since last summer again, you know, I think that there have been ongoing conversation which uh, Vice Chair Mandelman was involved with, and just really looking at tax reform along with our board presidents and and with with the mayor and and different stakeholders about what would that look like for the future if. Um, I think the tax reform is a necessary conversation, and we also, thanks to the uh, controller's office's work uh, in the, under the leadership of um, controller Ben Rosenfeld, and to just really moving that conversation forward. It, it is a necessary conversation, and I think that um, I, I look forward to just dive deeper in those um, information when it comes to um, just evaluating the impact of payroll tax, uh, evadi- evaluating the or the loss of it uh, and, and how that, in those structure and how that actually impacts San Francisco economy, not just right now and, and in the last few years, and, and, but just how do we correct that course and the timing and, and, and how. I look forward to that conversation. I know it's not a small feat. I appreciate the effort. Uh, what I do hope, though, is a continuing collaboration and conversations um, to, to get us to that point. Um, so thank you. I don't see any other name on the roster at the moment. Um, let's go to public comment on this item. And again, thank you both. Thank you, Madam Chair. We now invite members of the public who have joined us today and wish to address the committee regarding this hearing. Uh, now's your opportunity to line up uh, against those curtains to your right, my left. Uh, and as soon as the first speaker approaches the lectern, uh, I will start your time in two minutes. Good morning, Supervisors. Marnie Regan from Larkin Street Youth Services and co-chair of HESPA. We are dismayed by the proposed mid-year cuts that would eliminate expansion of food security for unhoused and unstably housed youth. The 200,000 funding ask seems extraordinarily meager for one of the wealthiest cities in the world. Cutting 200,000 in food security will not make a dent in the city's now $1 billion budget deficit. But more importantly, bolstering food resources in light of snap cuts and reductions in TNDC and food bank resources means tenants won't have to choose between buying food and paying rent. Also, the HESPA and Homeless Workforce Collaborative Adult Workforce ask is also on the mayor's budget cut list. Reducing workforce supports will negatively impact tenants' abilities to pay rent. And cutting ERAP will obviously result in tenants losing their housing, driving up homelessness. The mayor cannot claim that homelessness is one of her top priorities while while also defunding critical interventions like food, rental assistance, and workforce supports. A careful consideration of the tens of millions being spent on police, sheriff, and jail staff over time due to the massive increase in police response to substance use might offer impactful ways of reducing the city's deficit. We implore you to compel the mayor's budget office to think more creatively and effectively with respect to the deficit rather than putting this burden on the backs of literally the poorest and most vulnerable San Francisco residents. Thank you. Thank you much, Marnie Regan, for addressing this committee. Next speaker, please. Good morning, Supervisors. Uh, Janice Canalan, Safe and Sound, uh, from Safe and Sound, here on behalf of the Family Services Alliance, representing more than 40,000 people, including children and families, receiving services 
from 40 plus organizations citywide. Just general comments at this point. Our organizations and resource centers provide essential family support services, including those that prevent family homelessness and mental health crises. These organizations need strong investments and commitment from the city, even when the budget is challenging. Building a city that supports families is critical for San Francisco's economic revival. The investments need to fully maintain a vibrant array of accessible family support services. Uh, please be mindful uh, as this process goes on of these small organizations and ensure that they are fully funded long term. They make up a vital safety net for families and children. Thank you for all that you've done in the past for families, especially you, Supervisor Melgar. Thank you. Thanks so much. Next speaker, please. Hi, good morning, Supervisors. Hope Kamer, Compass Family Services, and um, Chair of the HESPA Family Subcommittee. I had other remarks to share today, but I wanted to offer something that happened while I was walking here from Compass's access point at 37 Grove Street. Um, I was startled when a young woman holding an infant and a toddler clutched my arm. Why is there nothing from my family, she asked me. We are sleeping in our car in the Bayview, and it's really, really cold. When we face a recession and make cuts to HSH's general fund programs, more children sleep in their cars. When we quietly accept cuts to ERAP as contingencies, children sleep in their cars. When we cut capacity to tenant right to counsel, children sleep in their cars. When we siphon or freeze funds from the Prop C family bucket to fund adult shelter during APEC with no outflow plans, more children sleep in cars. When you address the budget shortfall with cuts to services for very low-income families, you are making a decision to let children sleep in their cars. We can do better than we are doing. If homelessness is the mayor's priority, we must address all types of homelessness. Please keep homeless families in your mind when making difficult decisions this year in partnership with the mayor's budget office. Thanks. Thank you much, Hope Kamer. Next speaker, please. Good morning, members of the committee. My name is Adam Noor-Varoko, and I'm the senior chain navigator for the SF LGBT Center. I speak today regarding the mayor's proposed budget cuts and to implore this committee's member to keep vital homelessness services funded. Essential services such as covering food security, ensuring funding for homeless youth, as well as ERAF is a bedrock to remediation for homelessness. Our unhoused communities need continued access to safe shelter beds, food security, more available safe SROs, as well as other amenities that the city has been providing. Cuts to these programs and services would lead to undesirable outcomes, such as an increase in homelessness, a decrease in standards of care, and putting the lives of unhoused people at risk. These services that the city provides, whether by itself or through its access points and community partners, provide a path for folks to secure housing and enables people to lead safer lives. As a provider who works with unhoused queer and trans youth, teens who have been kicked out of their homes for who they are, youth who cannot afford their healthcare or gender-affirming transitions, I can attest how much their lives change once their food needs are met, their transit needs are met, their employment needs are met, and finally, their housing needs. Each of the city's services are a stepping stone to ensure a person goes from being unhoused to housed. Please keep these vital services funded. Thank you. And thank you for your comments. Next speaker, please. My name is Chanel Brown here on behalf of the Black Early Educators Policy Council, a group that advocates on behalf of black early educators and children in San Francisco convened by Children's Council of San Francisco. 
We urge the Budget and Finance Committee to maintain all child care funding and investments for both children zero to five years old and early educators. In San Francisco, black children face an uphill battle as only 44% of black children enter SFUSD kindergarten ready. With investment by the San Francisco Department of Early Childhood and the Office of Economic and Workforce Development, Children's Council of San Francisco has been able to help families access quality child care. Thanks to funding received through the DreamKeeper Initiative, our organization supported 16 individuals in opening up their child care businesses, which in turn opened up approximately 96 child care slots. 113 DreamKeeper participants received mini-grants, and 86 participants in two cohorts were served in a career pipeline program for black early educators. We thank Mayor London Breed, Dr. Cheryl Davis, Dr. Seda Latufufu, Birch, the Human Rights Commission, Supervisor Shaman Walton, and the City and County of San Francisco for the investment in black children through the DreamKeeper Initiative. We implore the city to maintain these investments in childcare as an investment in our city's future. Thank you for your time. Thanks so much, Chanel Brown. Next speaker, please. Uh, good morning, supervisors. My name is Maria Lustari. I'm the organizer of Parent Voices San Francisco. As a member of the Budget Justice Coalition, we fought during the ad back process um, and celebrated our wins. The proposed media cut is a slap in the face of our families at risk. Public safety includes protecting our families from media budget cuts for much needed services. We shouldn't be balancing the budget in the backs of at-risk children, youth, and their families. And we know that uh, our baby prophecy contributed to helping balance the budget last year, and we hope that it will not be targeted again for, for um, balancing that budget because the need of early care and education is great. Thank you. Thank you much, Maria Luz Torres. Final call for... Uh, uh, Final call for any more speakers who wish to address this committee regarding this hearing. Madam Chair, that completes our queue. Thank you. Seeing no more public comments, public comment is now closed. Colleagues, I think that we have a difficult time ahead of us and that require a lot of um, conversation and tough decisions. Um, but if anything, I just want to, again, welcome Supervisor Myrna Malgar to this committee who really play a critical role in last year's um, uh, budget to really negotiate it, um, our way to have a balanced budget without cutting into child care um, services uh, in, across the city. I look forward to seeing the same kind of collaboration um, and devotion and, and investment uh, from this body. But of course, uh, also thank you to um, Director Juning for your continuing work. Uh, this will be the second year we're doing this, but um, let's build on the momentum that we have from last year. And thank you so much for the controller's office for all the work that you're doing. I look forward to seeing um, with uh, the new leadership of, um, you know, to be, uh, approve and to be appoint uh, to be approved controller um, Greg Wagner and what we can do um, in this budget uh, cycle and, and proposed budget hopefully is a better and more balanced and figuring out a way that um, we can serve all San Franciscans. With that, uh, I would like to. Um, file, I believe we're filing this hearing, um, and I'd like to make the motion that this hearing has been heard and filed. Uh, with that, roll call, please. And on that motion, uh, that this hearing be heard and filed, Vice Chair Mandelman. Mandelman, aye. Member Melgar. Melgar, aye. Chair Chan. Aye. Chan, aye. We have three ayes.
Thank you, and with that, um, the motion passes. And uh, Mr. Clerk, do we have any other business before us today? Uh, Madam Chair, that concludes our business. Thank you, the meeting is adjourned.